welcome back, Siege fans. Before we begin today's episode, I wanted to comment on the fact that the podcast now has ads. Well, that's not news per se. You've already heard them by now. They started, without any warning, with this last Friday's episode. Kind of took me by surprise. Back last fall, I conducted a survey of whether listeners would prefer a subscription podcast or one free with ads. The majority chose free with ads, so I turned on the ads. Then nothing happened. It took ten months, but now there's ads. I have no idea why they started last week and not months ago. Maybe there's a secret threshold of downloads per week that the Siege podcast crossed last week. If that's the case, the ads might just as suddenly disappear if downloads drop below that secret threshold. Who knows? I guess we'll both find out. Today's episode is a bit of a look at part of the cultural background in the Siege stories. A look at that New Hampshire culture that underpins the stories. More specifically, that spirit of stubborn independence, self-sufficiency, and that hint of distrust of central authorities. It's that spirit that prompts the people of Cheshire, yeah, well, most of them anyway, to turn down government assistance with its strings attached and instead figure they'll cope and adapt on their own. It's that refusal to go along with the federal dictates that prompts the siege, after all, and that sets the backdrop for the rest of the story. But if you don't live in New Hampshire, you might be wondering, is that really a thing? Or did he just make that up? Well, no, it's really a thing. When I was putting together book two, Siege Fall, it seemed like a good time to look at how the people in a whole state might react to both the outage and some opportunistic federal overreach. As much as the stories focus on how the Simmons household is trying to cope, they're not doing so in a vacuum. How is the community around them handling things? That's where the stubborn independence of New Hampshire came into play. But to describe that, let me digress a bit with some personal experiences. When I arrived in New England decades ago, I came from parts of the Midwest which had their own flavor of local culture. You don't tend to notice the culture of a place you've lived in a long time. That's just how people do things. That is, until you go live someplace else. We moved to Massachusetts back in the 80s because that's where a job change took me. While living and working in Massachusetts, several things stood out about my neighbors and the people I worked with. One of the cultural features was a sort of proud complacency when it came to town and state government. No one I knew ever attended civic meetings. Very few of them even voted. They didn't see much point to it. The government was going to do whatever it was going to do, so why bother? As long as city water came out of their tap, their streets were plowed and the trash picked up, they didn't much care. People were almost smug about how uninvolved they were. Governing was something relegated to the largely invisible professional class of boring apparatchiks. The citizens of Mass seemed to be content to let their governing classes tend to all of that menial administrative work, so long as their free services continued uninterrupted. Another thing I'd noticed about my mass acquaintances was a subtle cultural snobbery toward New Hampshire. I'd never been to New Hampshire, so what did I know? The folks of Mass had nicknames for the state, like Cow Hampshire. In their view, New Hampshire was a backward land of uncultured rural hicks, and cows, of course. 
The mass folk I interacted with had something of an elitist air to them. They were the cool kids, enlightened, sophisticated. New Hampshire had none of that sophistication. New Hampshire men were crude brutes who <gasps> owned guns and drove pickup trucks. The women were dumpy and wore boots, not the latest style of Birkenstocks. When it came time to move out of the apartment and buy a house, we couldn't afford anything in Massachusetts. I looked farther north and found an affordable deal in New Hampshire. I didn't mind cows all that much, so we moved. My new neighbors weren't unsophisticated brutes, but just plain folks with more of a focus on getting things done by themselves, and less of that just-hire-someone attitude of my mass neighbors. The folks in mass saw doing something yourself as a hallmark of poverty, or being embarrassingly cheap, or just outright foolish. I mean, only a professional plumber can change the washer in a faucet, after all. I saw doing things myself as being more independent. I attended a town meeting in New Hampshire shortly after moving and was surprised about how engaged the citizens were. Instead of, like the usual city council meetings or school board meetings that I had attended, with only a few members of the public present while the officials carried out their mundane administrative chores, the New Hampshire town meeting was full of people, citizens of the town, and even a few dozen non-voting spectators from neighboring towns. When it came time for public input on warrant articles, many people came up to the microphone to speak in favor or against. When an article would potentially raise taxes for some project or another, quite a few times the citizens were vocal in their opposition. They didn't like new taxes. Those warrant articles usually got voted down. One time that stood out to me was a proposal by the selectmen to hire a company to drive up and down the streets spraying for mosquitoes. There was the usual mix of folks in favor of it and those opposed. It was kind of split. Finally, one woman came up to the mic with a product in her hands. She said that people didn't need to spend tax money fighting mosquitoes when all they had to do was buy an $8 package of these little discs that you toss in your ponds. The discs had a bacteria that killed mosquito larvae. She showed off the discs and gave some basic DIY tips on not leaving containers of open water around. If you don't want mosquitoes, she said, do something about it yourself. That one woman swayed the citizenry. The proposal for the tax-funded mosquito program was soundly voted down. That was just one vote that stood out in my memory, but it was far from rare. The people of small-town New Hampshire were decidedly hands-on when it came to their local government. They usually opposed anything with new taxes for services, preferring to do things themselves or do without. The citizens of New Hampshire were quite a bit different than the citizens of Mass. Where did that independent spirit come from, I wondered? It seemed like it started with the first settlers 400 years ago. It infused those who came later and was passed down generation to generation, and despite today's dilution from outsiders, it's still evident today. To see the roots of that stubborn independence, we need to go back to the beginning. The first settlers to New Hampshire came in 1623, only three years after the more famous landing of pilgrims at Plymouth Rock, and seven years before the Puritans arrived to set up shop in what would become Boston. A decade earlier, in 1614, Captain John Smith, this is the same John Smith of the Pocahontas story, by the way, 
visited the coast of what would become New Hampshire, and wrote, Here every man may be a master and owner of his own labor and land. If he have nothing but his hands, he may, by industries, quickly grow rich. Those first settlers were of that master-of-their-own-labor-and-land mindset, people seeking to be their own masters and build something of their own, with their own two hands. It already takes a level of stubborn determination to cross an ocean in small sailing ships and build a home and a business where there was nothing but forest and salt marsh. An important bit of backstory to the settlers is that there was this stockholder group in England in the early 1600s called the Council for New England. It was made up of some three dozen sirs, barons, earls, dukes, and the like. That council was granted authority by King James I, of King James Bible fame, by the way, to dole out patents, or land grants, for the as-yet-unclaimed New World. The Plymouth Colony was the first and the most famous of such grants. Two men, Sir Fernando Gorges and a Captain John Mason, got patents from that council for lands north of the new Plymouth Colony. Gorges took everything from the Piscataqua River north to the Kennebec River, what would become the state of Maine. Mason took everything between the Piscataqua and the Merrimack Rivers. He named his land grant New Hampshire. Mason got himself titled as First Vice Admiral of New England, whatever that meant. He arranged for some projects, provided some funding, but he died before ever traveling to his huge land grant and doing whatever it is a first vice admiral does. The first actual settlement in New Hampshire was on the south side of the mouth of the Piscataqua River, in what's now called Odierns Point, led by a well-connected man named David Thompson. He had gotten a patent from that same council, too, for some of the same land that they had granted to Mason. That council didn't seem too careful about doling out deeds. Their lack of care or precision would become a factor in later disputes. Anyhow, Thompson's settlement was a fishing business venture. They built a fort, put up some dwellings, set up fish-drying racks, and a sea-salt-making operation. They caught fish, salted them, and sold them to their countrymen back in England. Thompson's venture didn't last long, though. After five years, Thompson had left, and just a few of his people remained. In 1630, a Captain Neal arrived as the first of Mason's funded expeditions to his land grant. Mason had recruited settlers, hired and provisioned a ship, purchased supplies, etc., to set up some trading settlements to kickstart his province. The goal was to provide fish and timber to sell to in English markets and to provision English ships on this side of the pond. These settlers traveled a bit further up the Piscataqua River than Thompson had, to a more defensible point of land to set up their settlement. It would later become the town of Dover. A few others set up another settlement a little farther down the river, on the south side of the river, at a place called Strawberry Bank. That would later become the city of Portsmouth. Dover and Portsmouth still argue about which one of them was the first continuous settlement in New Hampshire. But it doesn't much matter for the spirit of New Hampshire. They were both of that self-sufficient, build-something-out-of-nothing-with-your-own-two-hands mindset. The founding of Exeter, New Hampshire's fourth town, in 1638, is a more interesting tale for a taste of that New Hampshire spirit. I say more interesting because Hampton, New Hampshire's third town, 
was settled by folks from Newburyport, Mass., as just another place to live. Nothing particularly bold. The next generations out of Hampton would be more interesting, but the founders were kind of a yawn. For the founding of Exeter, we have to first look to Boston. The Puritans showed up there in 1630 with the purported goal of finding religious freedom. Freedom from the Church of England, yes, but real religious freedom? Eh, not so much. Right away, they set up their brand of congregationalism as the only right and proper way to worship God. Anyone not strictly adhering to their particular doctrinal line ran into big trouble. One of those who ran afoul of the Puritan establishment was Roger Williams. He was hauled in before the authorities for teaching diverse, new, and dangerous opinions. Basically, he was questioning the ruling elite's authority to do much of what they were doing. For that, he was banished from Boston in the winter of 1636. His is a whole other story. A couple of years after Williams was exiled, there was another troublemaker in Boston, Anne Hutchison. She was an outspoken Bible study teacher who said people could be led directly by the Holy Spirit and didn't need the church hierarchy to manage their spirituality. Well, needless to say, the Puritan church leaders didn't much care for that sort of independent thinking. Anne's brother-in-law, the Reverend John Wheelwright, shared Anne's views that the Puritan church was too fixated on works, legalism, and not so much on God's free grace. Hutchinson and Wheelwright were hauled in for a hearing. The authorities accused Anne of breaking the fifth commandment, to honor thy father and mother, because she was not sufficiently respectful to the church fathers. Yeah, that's a pretty self-serving stretch. Anyhow, she and Wheelwright were pronounced guilty of not being respectful enough and banished like Williams had been. The Massachusetts General Court seemed to prefer to banish people in the winter, which made banishment kind of a sentence to death by winter. Hutchinson, along with her family and followers, were invited by Roger Williams, who didn't die in that winter after all, to come join him in Rhode Island, and so they did. Wheelwright and about 175 of his followers traveled north into the uncharted boonies of inland New Hampshire. Months earlier, suspecting that he was likely to get banished to the outer darkness of not Boston, Wheelwright had scouted out a good place in the boonies to be banished too, ahead of time kind of a bug-out location, for himself and his fellow outcasts. The spot he found was at a waterfall where a freshwater river, later named the Exeter River, met a brackish estuarial river from the bay, the Squamscut. The falls made a good spot for a grist mill, and it was a good fishing spot as well. At that time, the province of New Hampshire had no organized government, on account of Captain Mason dying before he could set up anything which suited Wheelwright and his followers just fine. They had had quite enough of governments bossing them around. Wheelwright bought the land from the local Abenaki chief, Wehan Naunawit. The exiles organized their own self-government and named their village Exeter. So you can imagine that these new settlers to inland New Hampshire brought with them a rather dim view of central authority and its self-serving justice system. New Hampshire spirit got a dose of skepticism about church government monopolies and, understandably, no warm, nostalgic feelings about Massachusetts. Fast forward about 50 years, and that independent mood hadn't softened. 
The 1680s provide an amusing example of New Hampshire residents' dim view of heavy-handed government and taxes. Back in England, the grandson of John Mason tried to assert his right as the heir to his grandfather's land grant in New Hampshire. Wheelwright bought the land in Exeter from an Indian chief, not the Mason estate, as you'll recall. This grandson Mason looked to cash in on Grandpa's patent. He arranged for a man named Cranfield to be appointed governor of New Hampshire, with a mission to demand back rent from all the squatters on his grandpa's land. Grandson Mason promised this Cranfield a cut of all the rent he collected. Cranfield showed up and told everyone that they were illegal squatters and owed the Mason estate some pretty hefty rents, or face foreclosure. No one paid the rent. Cranfield foreclosed on all the properties, but no one bought them, nor did any of the residents leave the properties. When Cranfield tried to impose an illegal tax, his tax collectors were met with threats of violence and run out of town. One story had a group of angry housewives chasing a tax collector out of town by throwing boiling water at him as he ran. Cranfield returned to England after just a few years without collecting anything. Fast forward another 40 years, and you get yet another dose of mistrust of governments. In the early 1700s, a bunch of Scots-Irish Presbyterians immigrated to New England. Their history is kind of complicated, but the relevant bit of it is that the Presbyterians in Northern Ireland faced some pretty serious religious persecution with the passing of the Test Act laws in 1704. These laws basically outlawed any religion other than the Church of Ireland, denying non-Catholics jobs, nullifying marriages performed by Presbyterian ministers, and thereby making children of such marriages legally illegitimate. Many Scots-Irish decided they'd had quite enough of that oppressive church-government combo and set sail for New England, looking for some civil and religious freedom. When they got to Boston, the descendants of the Puritans weren't too much friendlier than their forefathers had been toward non-Puritans. In the 1650s, the Puritans in Boston weren't content with just winter banishments anymore. They'd ramped things up and were outright executing Quakers for nonconformism. Well, that is, until the King of England told them to cut it out. So, when the Scots-Irish arrived with their differing views about how a church should be run, the Bostonians didn't like it. But they couldn't kill them. I don't know if the Bostonians of 1719 had welcome mats on their front porches, but if they did, they certainly had taken them in. The Bostonians told the Scots-Irish that they couldn't live in Boston. They had to go out and live in the hinterboonies. One batch of those Scots-Irish traveled up the Merrimack River and started a town where there was nothing but forest. They later named their town Londonderry, after the city that they left in Northern Ireland. New Hampshire got a fresh infusion of folks with a dim view of heavy-handed government, and Massachusetts's reputation hadn't been improved any either. An anecdote showing those less-than-friendly feelings about mass folks comes from around that same time that the Scots-Irish were moving in. In 1719, there were two different groups who were thinking of setting up some new towns in the unsettled inland of New Hampshire. One group was people from Hampton. These are the grandkids of those founders who were kind of boring, looking for some new land of their own. The other group were people from Haverhill, Massachusetts. 
For decades, New Hampshire and Massachusetts had been arguing over their mutual border, with Mass claiming more of New Hampshire than the residents of New Hampshire thought they were entitled to. This was a legacy of that Council of New England of being a bit loose with their deeds. With that kind of background, the Hampton Group took a dim view of the Massachusetts Group trying to stake claims in their potential backyards. I mean, if a Massachusetts Group was able to claim they had founded some towns, that might bolster their claim to move the border even farther north. It was a race to see who could survey the interior first. The Haverhill Group got a faster start, with a crew starting to survey in the woods and lay down markers. But, in an amusing twist, the Haverhill Group of surveyors ran out of rum and returned home for more supplies. The Hampton Group moved in fast, marking corners, laying out lines, and documenting it all. Of course, it boiled down to a legal dispute, but the Hampton people had more documentation to support their claim. Many of the settlers who founded those new inland towns then brought with them some of that distrust of those sneaky Massachusetts land grabbers. The New Hampshire spirit of self-reliance, independence, and distaste for central authority was still strong even a hundred years after the Scots-Irish came. You can hear it in the famous quote of General John Stark that became the state motto. He said, in a toast to his fellow Revolutionary War soldiers, Live free or die. Death is not the worst of evils. When I moved to New Hampshire, I could still see that self-reliant, independent mindset among my new neighbors. It stood out in stark contrast to the elitist but complacent subjects in Massachusetts. It's fascinating how the mindsets of people hundreds of years ago can still be present in a population. When I was expanding my siege story from the mere get-home tale of Book One, I thought to highlight that stubbornly independent streak in New Hampshire. Long before the lockdowns of COVID proved just how overbearing and oppressive a government could be, I had imagined a federal government that might deal with a crisis by locking everyone down and making heavy-handed demands. I could see the stubborn folk of New Hampshire bucking those dictates of a pushy federal authority, preferring to opt for a tougher life with independence than a marginally more comfortable life in subservience. The story got wider than just one family's survival. Currently, there is still a strong distrust of Massachusetts. Well before the current phenomenon of refugees from California flocking to Texas, or New York's refugees fleeing to Florida, for years, people from Massachusetts had been filtering up to New Hampshire. They often aren't particularly welcome. Hard feelings from hundreds of years ago still linger. Nowadays, the issue is newcomers from Mass who move up to the live-free-or-die country and still expect all the nanny state services they'd gotten used to. An example of that New Hampshire coldness toward Mass folk happened to a former boss of mine quite a few years ago. He lived in the Boston area and bought an old farmhouse up in the mountains of New Hampshire to be his summer getaway. Like old farmhouses tend to, it needed a lot of work. He knew the locals had a low opinion of mass folk, but an especially low view of Bostonians, as the historical stories help explain why. Instead of telling his new mountain neighbors that he lived in Boston, he told them that he was from Vermont, which was technically true as he was born there. As a Vermonter, he was deemed okay and able to hire contractors to do the landscaping, plumbing, electrical, etc. to get his old house fixed up. Friends of his, who also lived in Boston and also bought homes up in the mountains, 
made the mistake of telling the locals that they were from Boston. They complained to my boss about how they couldn't get anyone to come and do work on their summer homes. Word got around fast that these friends of my boss were Bostonians. The local contractors would stall or slow walk their quotes or just never return their calls. The locals really didn't want an influx of people from Boston. Old grievances fade very slowly. When I moved up to New Hampshire, I experienced a little of that same distressed feeling right away. I mean, it was hard to miss. As a newcomer in town, people would ask me, Where are you from? The first couple of times, I made the mistake of being too literally factual and said we were moving up from Massachusetts. I could see the narrowed eyes and hear the little snorts. It was pretty obvious that that was not the right thing to say. From then on, I was careful to say that we came from the Midwest. I mean, I only lived in Massachusetts for a few years and certainly hadn't succumbed to the Massachusetts hive mind. My personal tendencies toward DIY and self-sufficiency were more in line with the local ethos. It was easier to fit right in. Other newcomers from Mass have earned more of a cold shoulder. Often enough, the new residents from Mass would buy homes in the quaintly rural areas for its obvious charm, but they'd still expected the local government to provide them with all the same big city services that high Massachusetts taxes provided for them. They were usually all too happy to vote yes for higher taxes for everyone if they thought it would provide them with some free service. I say free in quote marks. They would come to a town meeting, insisting that the town build them sidewalks on their streets, pave their roads, pick up their garbage, install streetlights in front of their driveways, or force their neighbor to clean up his yard, etc. These whiners certainly didn't improve the low opinion New Hampshire folks had of mass residents. I tried to capture some of that mindset in various bits of the siege story. You probably caught it well enough. I wasn't all that subtle, I don't think. But now you've got some of the history behind it. I hope you found it helpful and maybe a little entertaining. In podcast news, aside from the ads appearing all of a sudden, the Siege podcast is now two years old. Yay! And just past 60,000 downloads. For that, I owe all of you listeners a huge thank you for your continued interest and your support. Thanks, too, to those of you who bought me coffees over at Buy Me a Coffee like Sergeant Jeff and Carrie Q. Thanks. I do appreciate your support. Thanks, too, to my Sage Club members and my patrons on Patreon for their ongoing support. I'll be back next week with the next chapter in Book 5. Talk to you then.